Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Deepterac Weekly, our weekly talk show where we talk about news, tech, rumors, everything in between. Uh, I'm a little bit under the weather today, but we'll get through the show, I hope, just fine. But to help me along, I got my good friends here. We'll start with Alex Batalia. How's it going, Alex? Hey there, Audi. I'm excited this week to talk about so many things on this roster. Let's get to it. Of course. And my partner in crime, my retro partner in crime, in fact, John Lemon. Hey guys, it's uh, good to be back on this here. We have mixed things up a little bit, you mm -hmm. know, after the bombastic show that was last week. I bombastic. saw it in the... It was it was something. So, Fantastic. yeah, yeah, we're back to clean house here. People. We have a lot of things to say, but not at all about the things we talked about last week. Barely. So let's get into the news of this week. We've got a new trailer for Battlefield 2042, and this trailer I think specifically targets a specific man on this panel. It is a trailer that shows off things like ray tracing. They talk about DLSS. But we are going to talk to Alex about it. Alex, what's your thoughts on this new trailer? Uh, well, I watched it, and I think the trailer's terrible, actually. I'm just going to be negative <laughs> again. The first uh, news item of the week, so negative, oh, Alex. Right. What is wrong with you? Uh, no, it's a bad trailer because, uh, one, it barely shows off the technique that's going on and showing off what it brings to the title. And secondly, uh, there's a lot of just pre-rendered stuff inside the trailer, as well as the one time they show some real-time stuff. It's actually running at, like, 20 frames per second. So I have no idea who edited that trailer who approved it but i don't know why it was released and beyond that alex i think it's only 1080p yeah what right? were they thinking i have why no idea. <laughs> why would you do this it's a, a choppy low resolution pc trailer like what? Oh, i have no idea i mean that's like what a, it's a very negatively uh voted on uh video on youtube for, for sure for good um, reason yeah, for good reason. And I think, though, uh, we should talk a little bit about what it adds. And that is ray-traced ambient occlusion that is being showed off in this trailer primarily. And on the NVIDIA website, there are some screenshots showing off the difference between the baseline HBAO and the Frostbite engine and the ray-traced ambient occlusion. And I was actually pretty surprised um, that they decided to go with ray-traced ambient occlusion instead of they already had essentially a version of ray tracing in Battlefield 5, which was uh, reflections. And it was maybe not 100% always appropriate for the art style in Battlefield 5 because, you know, it took place at a time where, you know, industrial things were different. Not everything was made of, you know, hardcore plastics or polished metals uh, like we see nowadays. But Battlefield 2042 takes place in the future where everything's, you know, chrome and you know how things are in the future. The fact that there's no ray trace reflections. It's 1080p. Yeah, everything's that's, 1080p that's in the future. And I just feel like <laughs> it's a missed opportunity to um, make the game graphics better, uh, not by having these reflections, but ray trace dynamic occlusion is nice because it um, it's like a free win uh, for a lot of graphical scenarios without having to worry too much about a lot of performance. Uh, it's, it's cheaper than reflections for sure. Uh, in all the areas and stages that are outdoors uh, and even, you know, not with shiny materials, it'll add an improvement into the game. But it's not going to be wholly dramatic uh, always. Uh, it'll definitely help in some scenarios that I'll probably show off in my video, but it is a little bit disappointing to see uh, maybe not two effects. You know, why not ray traced ammo occlusion or ray traced reflections? I don't know, John, what do you think? Just, I'm utterly baffled by the the removal or the non-inclusion of ray traced reflections because these guys were the pioneers of this with battlefield five like as you 
covered so I mean, we've discussed about this so many times the reflections in that game are phenomenal and they still are uh but as you noted that use that wasn't set in a different time a lot more diffuse materials around less reflections in general uh this one would probably be even you know th this would benefit so much from having ray trace reflections it's almost difficult to like overstate uh that and I'm, I would really love to understand what it is that resulted in them wanting to remove this feature. I mean, is it, was it just not performant enough? They felt, which I find suspect. Was it, were they actually, like, you know, one of the things they, they touted when they first showed it was that you could see around corners, right? Are they, are they actually worried about that being used in like in a cheating capacity? Like I, that seems silly to me, but maybe, uh, I, I honestly don't understand why they would walk this back. And in fact, I would say the general presentation of 2042 is just, um, it feels somewhat flat and unimpressive in a way that I'm not used to seeing with Frostbite games. Like new Frostbite games, usually they, they come out and they kind of blow us away with what they're displaying. Uh, I mean, you even look back, I, I you look at some of the, some of the campaign stuff from like Battlefield 4, and obviously it has the rendering limitations of that era, but it still holds up really well. And it looks awesome in motion. And you kind of would expect a, a massive leap from that, but I don't feel like we're getting there. Yeah, I'd agree with that, John. And, you know, there is a presentation uh, that's going to be happening at the NVIDIA GTC uh, very soon about uh, making ray tracing a first-class citizen in Frostbite, it's called. And so... The fact that they're talking about it all at all, you know, in a recent presentation that's coming up, maybe makes me think the reason why they removed it, uh, these ray trace reflections, is because the way they did it in Battlefield Five was maybe very game specific, or it was very haphazardly done, or something like that, and they wanted a more cross game implementation. But you know, it's it's just weird that it's RTAO in the end, <laughs> which is like. I don't know. It's just okay. It's cool, but there's cooler things. Well, the other thing they were touting a lot, Alex, was the NVIDIA Reflex. What can you say about that? Reflex is, uh, well, this is cool for people that play on PC with super high uh, refresh rate monitors and that just like low latency gaming. Uh, that's essentially what it's about. It's about reducing the rendering latency for your like uh, pixel to click essentially latency and it works really well in games and you know it's a nice upgrade over the console versions if you're into that kind of thing but one thing about this title is i'd be really curious to when it does come out if i can to test how cpu limited it is because um there's like you know maps where it's like 128 players and all this stuff is going on are people really going to be playing this game at like super high frame rates i don't really know we we saw a video this week of somebody actually got together uh a lot of people into call of duty warzone which is really cool to see the game just kind of breaks apart by the way it's fantastic uh but they were wondering like so why does call of duty get 120 frames per second and battlefield doesn't and I think this that video kind of helps answer it a little bit because the nature of Warzone is such that you're usually not, players are not concentrated in such a, a singular spot like that normally in that game. It's very, very rare. It actually takes real effort to pull it off. Whereas in Battlefield, that actually can and does happen often enough where there's a huge cluster of players in a specific spot. And I just don't think... I, getting to 120 frames per second with with what Battlefield is doing, 
I'm not sure it's all that feasible, to be honest. I, I just don't think the consoles could necessarily get there without some pretty serious compromises that perhaps they're not willing to make. And for Battlefield, I mean, 60 FPS is absolutely more than adequate. It's not re- like 120 would be great, but it's not a Twitch shooter. And even on PC, like trying to, I, I don't think most PC users are going to be running at those super high frame rates either, to be honest, without dramatically altering their settings. So it's it's just one of those things. It's one of those games too, where the, the, the render distances are usually so far. So like cutting back the graphical quality for like, you know, like the rendering draw and all that stuff makes the game look really hideous. I know people do that because they play these games like that uh i don't i don't like the way the games look like that but you know in a game like battlefield it seems like you're missing out on a lot of the presentation if you just start compromising all these like long-range rendering quality things and it starts looking more like the xbox one version (laughs) my my only comment to any of this would just be if if people would actually be using these features or just turning them off to ensure a stable frame rate and gameplay experience it depends because dlss is a thing that is really great for increasing your frames per second um but the battlefield series in the past you look at battlefield uh 2 you look at battlefield 3 i would say battlefield 4 and even battlefield 1 and battlefield 5 they've all been about kind of like pushing graphical envelopes uh, in a variety of different places, whether it's on console in one iteration, on PC in another iteration, or something like that. And, you know, part of the game and Frostbite is, it's like the, the thing that shows off Frostbite, what Frostbite can do. And it's, I think it's okay, even if most people turn off a feature, to just have it in there to show what the engine can do and have it look great two to three years later. This is just about the technology. I mean, I'm not, I don't think you and I, Audio, have really any interest in playing this game. <laughs> yeah. If you couldn't tell, it's not really my um, ballpark. It is fascinating tech wise, and that's kind of it, I think. Yeah, I look at that trailer and I'm just, I feel like an old man. I'm just like, that looks quite impressive, boy. <laughs> and then I, you know, I realize I will never play it. So I'm just fascinated that we managed to start off the show with uh, Alex tearing down another, yet another trailer, another game. <laughs> another casualty on the list (laughs) lucky for you alex everyone out there always agrees with you you're right it will be the same this of course (laughs) let's i think everyone will agree on this panel let's move on next item is actually a saga we should say that we've been following since the beginning of this being reported it's quite interesting that it is being reported as widely as it is all things considered but the cmos battery in the ps5 this time seem the issue with it or the potential issue seems to have been patched and fixed i've seen some uh, videos now on youtube uh, where people do uh, play with a dead battery and show games actually running there's some that don't but very few uh john let's talk about this because it is quite interesting uh sony has listened and actually fix these things what's going on so this was something highlighted i think was it earlier this year that this it has to have been right yeah Yeah, i think so but like does it play the twitter account uh which is you know a fellow that we we've talked to before about this stuff um they kind of raised the fact that on playstation i guess it was actually last year we found about ps4 and ps3 but then PS5 also kind of, it became evident that there's an issue. Essentially what would happen is if the CMOS battery died, you would, and you restarted your system, uh, you wouldn't actually be able to play anything. Essentially, you had to connect to the internet, a server, set the time and everything. 
um, which sounds small, but again, the whole point is that servers like this will not be online forever. And essentially this is about preventing the system from becoming obsolete and unplayable in the future. And, you know, as I mean, Audie and I, and I guess even Alex now, we're very much into retro hardware, right? And keeping stuff running for like 20, 30, 40 years. So this is of interest to us. So the fact that the PlayStation 4 and PS5 were essentially unplayable if the battery was dead, and if you couldn't reactivate, you could never play it again. They already fixed PS4, we discussed that. Uh, and now they've not only fixed the PlayStation 5, but they've actually done a better job of it even compared to the PS4 situation where... Let's say you have some digital games installed and you have some disc games. Uh, without a CMOS battery, you can not only install and boot your physical games, but you can actually still boot your digital games as well, which is really interesting. It's almost like um, just changing the fundamentals of the way the DRM had worked previously. I think the only limitation, as you'd expect, is that PS Plus games do not work, um, which makes sense, again, because you don't actually like own them. So... I can understand them having a server check for that because that is a service-based thing. Uh, but yeah, basically that means, you know, down the line, um, the, the system will be safe in this regard. I think uh, what this means, John, is that in 30 years, our episode DF Retro on PS5 games will be just fine. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We'll be able to boot those games. We'll be able to boot them all. Uh, <laughs> the, the good thing here and the kind of surprising thing that I alluded to is just that I think this is a huge win just for game preservation and the conversation around it because if you had said this 10 years ago i don't think any website would have reported on this really uh, i think the general populace would just look at it and be like well i mean i'm not going to be playing these consoles in 10 years 15 years and it kind of bypasses all the actual historical value that we're talking about what history actually is being lost by making them obsolete it's something that we talk a lot about in film uh, but the conversation has slowly been able to legitimize itself in gaming. Uh, so I'm quite impressed by the fact that we are getting these fixes. Uh, I'm quite impressed that people are reporting on it. And it is thanks to Twitter accounts such as... Does it play? And, uh, you know, we have reported on this uh, basically since the beginning as well. MVG does great work uh, keeping this conversation alive. So you got to... It's pretty cool to see this, that Sony is listening to. Well, the thing is that this kind of proves, first of all, that people always say, oh, you know, making, you know, petitions and raising this stuff that companies don't care or listen. This is an example of a time where they actually did care and listen. So it did work. Um, so it's important to remember that going forward. Uh, but second of all, despite the fact that this ended up being beneficial for everyone, there was still a lot of people that were very upset that that anybody was talking about this in the first place because they're always ready to defend their favorite corporation uh, even if even if the thing does not benefit them. And I never understood that. But thankfully, in the end, um, the message got through and the system is fixed. So I think what's so important to remember when we talk about this stuff is that we are of a certain age. And you know, when you're 20 to you know, whatever age we are now, you know, we t tend to think a lot about ourselves in these conversations, whether or not we only play digital and don't care about our ownership, whatnot. It doesn't really matter. But for me, I always think about, you know, I have two young nieces, you have a son, John. They are growing up playing these current games. And for them, these are the games that they might come back to, like we are with Mega Drive games and whatnot. And if we just shut down that conversation as like, well, I don't really care. No one's gonna care in, you know, 15, 20 years. 
uh, that's not true and it doesn't really help anything it, seeing how easy it is to patch this and now you know conversations over um, it's fixed and everyone can move on and everyone is happy it, it just isn't helpful to have that kind of like uh, a bypassing mentality towards it uh, Alex I mean you have been building retro computers now uh, you've been slowly coming into our domain uh, what's your thoughts when you hear stuff like this I'm very happy that Sony listened to the uh, people and the, the press uh, writing about this and their concerns and I just hope uh, that this shows uh, so if Sony can show this off I hope that uh, that we don't ever have this problem on the Nintendo side of things and I hope that since Sony did it, their main competitor in the market, Microsoft, will look at a way to enable activation for Xbox in an offline capacity. Uh, whether that means like you shove a USB stick in it or something like that, I don't really know what it needs to be, but it needs to happen um, because you know that's another thing where Xboxes, after a certain amount of time, may also have this issue, and that's something we definitely do not want to see. There is another patch, another update that makes us happy, especially John Lindman, because I think you really enjoy this game. Dying Light on the Switch now shows some improvements. Uh, what are these improvements, John? Yeah, so I wanted to specifically flag this because I didn't see much reporting on it. But um, So I covered this game recently on the Switch. It's a very impressive port of a very demanding game. They did a great job, but one of the issues I highlighted in there was that uh, they didn't cap the frame rate. So on Switch, you know, you run around outside and it's usually hanging around 36 frames per second, uh, which is not good. It's very juddery and it would still go down and up and it just had this very inconsistent feel that was not fluid in any way. Um, and I raced this with them and they said, we're looking into it. And it seems that they did in fact look into it and they found the solution because the current update for the game completely fixes it. Uh, they have implemented a 30 frames per second cap, which again, I think is a very good thing in this case. Um, and it works. It feels extremely fluid now. I found that the general performance, the, the frame uh, persistence was correct. There's no frame pacing errors. Uh, it just locks to 30. It feels very, very stable. Uh, you still can get some dips below 30, you know, in some of the busier sequences, but by and large, it now delivers the experience that you would expect. And not only that, they improved some other things too. They increased the internal rendering resolution, specifically in the handheld mode. So the game is now sharper in handheld mode. And with their reconstruction, it actually looks surprisingly close to being native res for the screen, even though technically internally it's not. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, I haven't I haven't actually done these comparisons, but I did look around and it felt like the the lot distance was slightly tweaked and improved with areas where I specifically remember standing there looking, not being able to see certain objects, and now they seem to be visible. So I don't know if it's just a random occurrence or not. I'd have to look at more into depth. But I guess the point is that the game just looks better, it runs better, uh, and I'm kind of impressed that it's as good as it is right now. So yeah, good on, that's what, this is, this is kind of what this DF Direct show can be useful for, sort of highlighting situations like this, where a complaint we raised in a video at some point has been completely addressed. And, you know, that's exactly what they've done here. So that's awesome. I worked on a specific game in Japan uh, last year. I think you might know what I'm talking about. Oh. I was working on a game <laughs> and uh, I was... You know, much like you, I was just telling the developer that it might be better to actually cap at 30 and keep, 
you know stable frame rates even though it's lower uh, this might be more advantageous on the Switch. And uh, the, this was met with uh, uh, not as positive a response as yours. Um, so no patch there. But it is something that went on the Switch. It is better to just cap at 30 rather than to leave it, you know, in this. Yeah, when it's that unstable like that, right? Yeah, that, that's the instability, instability is what really uh, kills it. And uh, I was very frustrated with this and i'm glad to see that developers um at least in the west that seems to be more open to just cap it you know yes it can achieve higher at certain points but it's best just better to be stable i don't know if you remember alex but this is actually kind of a, a th most of Techland's past console games had this issue where they essentially left the frame rates unlocked for some reason i don't know why uh so I guess I'm actually kind of surprised and thrilled to see that they actually can do a really good 30 FPS lock. So it's, it was never, it's not a technical problem. They just didn't do it. So, and they have now, we know they can do it. Uh, that's good news. <laughs> it's a bit like Sony Santa Monica with God of War back when you covered it, John, how like all the God of Wars were always like uncapped up to 60, right? And then you come along and you're reviewing God of War and it's like, well, we probably shouldn't do that here. And John's influence is, I would argue, one of the main reasons that game has a nice FPS cap, right? Well, to be fair, in that case, there was always the performance mode, right? Which was intended to be uncapped, but the, in its initial state, the, un, the quality mode, which is the way I wanted to play it because the performance mode wasn't stable, they left it uncapped, but it was only up to like 33 or 34 FPS with constant tearing. It was really bad. Um, so yeah, we raised that before launch at least, and they were able to fix that and it was perfect in the end. And we still got the 60 FPS patch for PS five, because I know some people were upset that, uh, that cap had been added because if you use the off the disc version, you could play it at P on PS five at 60 FPS right away. Uh, but in the end they patched it. So it doesn't matter. I'm feeling much better already. It's been all feel good, you know? Great to see these updates, these games, and uh, yeah, I, I played this a little bit when I was at your place recently, John. It is a very impressive port. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I hadn't played that game before, but uh, really, uh, it was really cool to just see it running on the Switch like that. So thanks to them for listening and uh, updating. So uh, I guess it's time for us to move on. As of today, I believe, as of recording at least, uh, Netflix is actually adding games to their service. This is something they've been touting and talking about for a while. It's always been rumored since many years back, uh, but it is finally here. Uh, among the games is Stranger Things uh, and a few others that are kind of associated with Netflix. Uh, Alex, uh, what is your thoughts on games coming to Netflix? People always talk about Games Pass and I guess a lot of these other games as a service. PS Now, to a certain degree, some aspects of that as being games as a service where you kind of get it as a Netflix model of games. It's a little bit different, I would argue, uh, but the you know you still don't actually have ownership there. Netflix moving into this arena is interesting because I think they have a very interesting track record regarding their media uh, that they post. Uh, you know, they have some very successful, smaller niche indie films and, you know, smaller art house titles that I find very interesting. But they also have large, you know, uh, very mass media style sitcoms. And I'm really interested to see what type of games that they do end up uh, bringing out there uh, because they have such a diverse lineup uh, for, you know, shows and movies. 
well, what kind of stuff will they be funding for games? And that's what interests me about this. But honestly, the things that they've shown so far and the, the method of which it's uh, played is not very much so for me, but uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. I actually thought this was interesting. And uh, in the sense, so the games they've announced stuff includes two Stranger Things titles, um, some sports games like Shooting Hoops, whatever that is, a card game. It's very simple stuff, right? This is not intended to be a replacement for your console. But the thing that stood out to me is that it's not a streaming service. Net Netflix is all about streaming video, right? And then you think naturally when it comes to games, they're going to push the streaming angle as well, like so many others. And it turns out they're not. You actually have to download these games, uh, which I actually think is good. And also almost kind of an indictment of streaming for games. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm reaching no, a little bit there. This was going to be my it. point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be my follow-up question here. I mean, you know, everybody knows I'm not a fan of game streaming. So, uh, you know, that, that can be, yeah. <laughs> but I th that that's why I thought this was interesting news. I was like, wait, Netflix isn't even going to do streaming for games? That's bizarre, but like good. <laughs> I think you've had like rental services in the past, like GameTap, was it? One of them and stuff like this. Like the idea of renting games and whatnot was floating with Netflix since they became as big as they are. And what they've gone for, I think most people when they were thinking about this because I think worldwide still, I'd say that Netflix is kind of the leading streaming platform. I guess Disney Plus is technically getting there now. Uh, but Netflix is still synonymous, right? It's the whole Kogan of streaming. <laughs> and uh, so you'd think that they go for something like a Game Pass kind of like type of thing. Some subscription model for you know PC gaming or something. And they instead are going for more of a what I perceive to be marketing tie-in for their properties. That's good. Um, I mean, it's actually good. It's only on Android for now. We should I forgot to note this, but it is kind of being rolled out on Android first. Uh, it's, it is their own apps. Uh, it is much more of a marketing tie-in. Uh, my question then would be, John, do you think as they're, you know, putting their feet in the water here, just checking out, do you think eventually they will go into something where you see more general games being added to the service? Or are they just simply kind of too late to that party and they're focusing on their own thing? You know, they have they have their own budgets to manage this stuff. And I mean they stress that there's no ads, no in-app purchases, they're all locally downloaded games, and it's all tied to your Netflix subscription, which means that, you know, it, it feels like the usually with mobile games i find there's always an insidious side to them right and I, I i use that lightly because ultimately any business is about making money right but it's the way in which mobile games try to make money that i i typically don't care for um i feel it can be but not always it can be predatory they don't seem to be taking that approach because they've kind of already sold you uh, the subscription, they have right? Money. They yeah. have your money, right? <laughs> yeah. So this potentially gives creators the chance to make some fun, interesting little tie-in games. Like they're not, it doesn't sound like they're going into the AAA space here. So it's not like they're trying to create these big budget things, but they could actually make some cool little like tie-ins that kind of like pull into the buzz around some of the shows. And it seems pretty harmless and potentially fun. Think of the potential here, John, because they have Resident Evil now. They have Castlevania. I'm not saying they're going to make the new classic Castlevania or the new classic Resident Evil, but they have now 
the opportunity to make something different to tie into these game franchises uh, with doing their own thing. I was just thinking about how they did something very interesting with Bendersnatch uh, back in the day. There could be some very interesting cross-media potential here. That, that's what I was going to say. I was like, what if they could integrate this in a way where something like Bendersnatch exists, but you actually can use your phone then to interact with it. And they could essentially make it a little more interactive, perhaps, uh, rather than just the way it worked in that show already so i don't know um yeah there's a lot of potential here to kind of make interactive experiences with like stuff like black mirror and all this you know uh there is a lot of upside to this for netflix to add gaming and not going to the traditional gaming space by making you know yet another subscription-based game pass like thing because they're already successful they're already there so i kind of actually i was just testing this around i was kind of happy with it strangely yeah you know i was just kind of like this is much more interesting than what I expected it to be. The only thing I'd say, you know, they now have Seinfeld and stuff. Just add like the multimedia CD-ROM games. To the yeah, system, right. You know? <laughs> Just bring it back. Oh, <laughs> dude. The trivia. Where's the Friends trivia game? Bring all that stuff back. Yeah. I I, I miss the multimedia CD-ROM experience. Dude, the I want my mouse the pointers Muppets, and screensavers Muppet back. CD-ROM is incredible. Uh, right. I love that. Or heck, they they could. I had a Batman one. Oh yeah, they could get Duckman back on there, and then bring the Duckman Why, game is back. Is Duckman on? Netflix? I don't know. I don't even know. Uh, that was a great show with Duck, Jason Man. Alexander yeah, yeah. from Seinfeld. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. So. And it had the game without Jason Alexander as the voice Duckman. <laughs> Which uh, for it's a little jarring, but uh, you know. Yeah, great works. game. Look, recently, uh, you know that new Space Jam movie. I haven't seen it, but it had that interesting beat 'em up arcade. Uh, so you could do things like this. There was that uh, mobile. It was a browser game you showed me, John, with like a Olympic sportsman who talks to a bear. Yeah, that was the uh, the one for the year 2012. It was from Old Spice, actually, of all things. And it was Old Spice. Uh, that's right. Um, Dikembe Mutombo's uh, save, like race to save, save the world or something. <laughs> and it was hell. It's amazing. It was amazing, like the pixel art stuff, and just like. Yeah, if you could show that in this video here, you should because that thing I, I absolutely that was absolute madness. I loved that back in the day. It was just you know, that that is as ad money put to good use. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. I'm so glad I could spend it with my two best friends, Sans the Bear and Random Turkey. Yeah. So random turkey, is Thanksgiving awkward for you? Why would it be awkward? No reason. Oh my good griefness. Look! Bluggies. Bluggies. I thought I destroyed the last one of those six years ago. Well, they're back. And their return can only mean one thing. The end of the world. That's what I'm seeing here, potential of. It's just fun experiences like this that ties into these properties. So I think this is a win-win situation for... And Netflix to do it this way. Newsflash, everyone. Bloodborne is coming to PC in a remake. <laughs> it has been reported now at Polygon and other places that the popular remake of Bloodborne that has been floating around a little bit, it is a remake on the Unreal Engine that is targeting to look like the PlayStation 1. John, what's your thoughts on this? So I actually want to start by saying that this is actually more impressive than you might think because they have intentionally made this look very much like they captured the PlayStation aesthetic very well. Uh, it has affine texture swimming, 
uh, and a lot of other of the typical visual glitches that you associate with that era of hardware. Uh, the thing is, though, so Unreal Engine 4 is like this modern PBR focused kind of engine. It's not really designed to do these things. And I've spoken with some developers in the past that are trying to do retro style games in Unreal Engine. And it kind of fights you along the way, right? So this guy had to go to some pretty great lengths, I suspect, to get it looking this authentic. Because there is no reason why you would normally want to display textures in this fashion in Unreal Engine, right? Uh, it doesn't normally make sense, but it is possible, obviously, and he's pulled it off. And I was actually surprised with how accurate it looked. I, I don't even know. I, I'm trying to think to myself how you would even make the render do affine texture <laughs> mapping, to be honest. You can do it in a shader. If, if that's like probably what it has to be done, right? It has to be done in like a shader or something. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so... I mean, it's not like a one-to-one -one version of Bloodborne, right? Because they are trying to keep it somewhat authentic to PlayStation. And that means the environments are smaller, more limited. The draw distance is more limited. Like, it actually does look like that, which impresses me. It looks cool. It actually looks pretty darn, like, it could be potentially fun. I'd be curious to see just how far they actually go. Uh, because... At a glance, it also kind of looks like, um, I don't know if you guys remember, it looks like Nightmare Creatures from Callisto. Yeah. That's the first thing I thought of was like, man, this is Nightmare, Nightmare Creatures. Nightmare Creatures looks fun to play. <laughs> from the developer of Dark Earth. <laughs> so after Dark Earth, they did this. Different team, though, I think. Uh, but it does look very, very similar to that. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there's not much more we can say now because we haven't played it it's just it's just the what they're doing that i find so fascinating i think we could maybe just talk about the general switch over to in the indie sphere to a different era of graphics you know at the start of i would say indie gaming uh i would say really kind of play-to-be 3d was like in as well as um you know snes era you know, 16-bit games. I would there was say a lot was of really fake 8-bit stuff. Yeah, you know, that's it was like kind of wasn't, breaking the wasn't. boundaries of what it was. But they're like, well, this looks like an NES game, but it has like five nah, layers of parallax scrolling. Fake bit, <laughs> fake bit. Um, <laughs> exactly. But this is, you know, crossing into that wobbly 3D era, which I mean, th there's definitely nostalgia for it, and I think it actually really works well for the horror genre, which I consider Bloodborne partially a horror game. And, you know, it's because, you know, it's just like creepy late at night watching this glowing stuff on your CRT, which does dark really well. Uh, I think it's kind of a perfect game for it. And I really, there's some other ones. I think there's one called like Fractured. What is it called? Something Fractured. It's the one that looks like a first person Dino Crisis. Um, that one is also really interesting looking, but I really like that this era of 3D is coming back. The low poly? Low poly, uh, low draw distance. Uh, unfiltered textures i love that i kind of love it but i kind of wish so the thing is as you look back in that era there were arcade games that existed that had similar aesthetic but without those limitations like you play something like like namco's rave racer or something like that right it does it does not have filtered textures but it runs at 640 by 480 the textures are correct they have perspective correction uh it has more polygons than a playstation game of course they're targeting 60 frames per second but they still managed to look very much of that era, just in a different way. And I actually think that's the aesthetic I would like to see targeted more often. Uh, because that stuff, 
I, I don't actually think affine texture warp is is a good thing. Like it's interesting <laughs> to see. I don't. <laughs> I do not miss it at all. I love unfiltered textures. I love yeah. low res unfiltered textures. I don't love the affine texture warp. So, um, what you're saying is that Bubsy 3D is the way to go. Bubsy 3D it is good. When I when I talked about it in the DF retro, like that was the credit I gave. Was it was a high res game, and it was flat shaded. So it's very basic, especially for that time. But you look back now, it's like, okay, this actually kind of holds up better than a lot of PlayStation games. It really does. That's why, you know, that's why I was telling you when we were making that episode. It's like, this is better than you think. I think some <laughs> doesn't uh, really agree, wait, but it's interesting. No, it does not. But uh, Rich is, you know, he's got his knife out, to, considering what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, uh, but when we're talking out. about... Uh, <laughs> low poly that you want to go back to i, I always look at like Mega Man legends yeah that's beautiful I love that man. kind of art style in that direction i would love to see <sighs> those kind of games there's been a couple of that like the unfiltered really like beautiful color schemes and like leaning into a animated aesthetic but it's few and far between because you have to be so consistent with it uh it's hard to do yeah the thing i liked about Mega Man legends and something that we don't see often is that all the facial expressions were like individual textures you know, but they were done so well. It it actually works. It works better than using like geometry to model way those types of better. Like it just it looks properly. Like uh, it just captures the the look and emotion really well. And I I love that aesthetic. But Shinden was doing it day one on the PlayStation. It's better than Final Fantasy VII's were would be though, where they just have like the <laughs> giant terrible, ugly though. textured eyes on nothing else. It's, it's always fun to talk about PlayStation One, and I do love D makes in general. Uh, we've seen a few of these on Mega Drive and stuff. It's a topic we'll come back to. It's a topic we'll talk about in DF Retro. Uh, but until then, let's move on to our next news item. And for our next news item, I guess we're still staying retro. Uh, but again, a kind of a recurring theme here on the DF Direct Weekly is a little pick adventure, the Twinson series. It keeps coming back up again, thank God, because what a great series of games this was. But John Lindman, the actual source codes for the Little Big Adventure 1 and 2 is now public. What's your thoughts on this? Don't close the video tab yet, Rich. We're this is good stuff, actually. Um, I think this is great because uh, this is finally given giving these games the chance to be reborn in a source port, right? Because they don't work very well with modern operating systems. I mean, there's ways to do it, um, but they're they're beautiful, enjoyable, really interesting games um, that I I love them. I played them both back in the day, and. Uh, by doing this, it essentially means now that we'll, we should actually, I think there is actually already some kind of like modern release version of these, but I think they could do more with it. And I would like to see that basically. The thing I would love to see is maybe they could even figure out a way to do like scrolling or um, maybe, you know, for, so like Alex, have you ever played any of these games, by the way? No, I have yet. So Little Big Adventure 2, also known as Twinson's Odyssey has one of the most fascinating rendering techniques I've ever seen of that era. They wanted to do large outdoor 3D environments during the era where games had to run on a 486 still, right? Um, they wanted to display a level of polygonal detail that just wasn't feasible in real time at that time yet. So they instead they made an engine where the camera can actually change at will by tapping the enter key. You can change it to any, any angle you want you can, the camera actually adjusts as you move from scene to scene. It's like sort of cinematic camera angles, but it's all rendered in polygons. 
And essentially what happens is every time you reset the camera or move to a border, it quickly redraws the scene and goes to the next frame. So it's essentially creating, uh, it, it's doing in real time a drawing of a scene. It's not fast enough to do it many times per second, but it is fast enough to actually redraw it in a new angle. So you get the benefits of 3D, sort of, um, but it's much more com complex than what would have been possible at the time. And now I'm wondering with the source code, if they could potentially go back and actually figure out make a way it to, real 3D, like make like, it actually fast, fast and like real 3D, uh, because the camera system, I mean, it's all kind of there. It just runs in a weird way. So I don't know. I, I, I would love to see something done there. You know, Gorvich himself came out and stated that, like, you know, this is a release meant for people to look into the source, figure out, you know, ways to express a little bit of adventure the way they want to. So it is for people to learn from and to, you know, potentially do what you're saying that John is to improve it and bring it, you know, to uh, modern platforms or modern PCs, rather. I do think, I think you could sort of play one at least in Scum VM. It wasn't perfect though. There's also LBA Win, which was like a some port that existed. But I think unleashing this on GitHub and allowing the community to go nuts is always the way forward for allowing some really cool stuff to happen. We've seen it so many times. It paid dividends. I mean, that's I think that's part of the reason why you know id Software stuff was so successful back in the day. Aside from being great games, it was this approach to uh, open sourcing them when they released their next project that helped them live on for so many years. Uh, it's good for this too. It's just been back in the news a little bit. Uh, Wire Records did that fantastic uh, soundtrack set that I got recently. And uh, I think you were reporting, John, that 3 is coming. They announced that, yeah, uh, exactly. LVA 3. So just happy to see this back. The atmosphere in these games are sublime. It's just Seriously. a fantastic game. Go, go play them if you uh, haven't. Go check them out. Uh, to anybody yeah, watching. There, there was a PlayStation version. There was two PlayStation versions, in fact. There was one in Japan and then one in Europe. Uh, go get the European one. It has a pseudo, I almost want to say Zelda-like structure to it, but with much more adventure gamey elements. And your character can essentially has four, you have like a normal and athletic mode, a combat mode, and then like a stealth mode. You basically hold a control to cycle between or toggle between one of those four states. And so the gameplay, you, you're basically choosing your character state. It's an interesting thing at a time before things could, you know, necessarily be easily streamlined as we see today and it's cool so the game has a lot of stuff going on but that's an i, I could gush about this all day we really need to do a df retro on this actually at some point well that kind of caps off the news for this week uh but we of course have other things to talk about regarding df so let's move on to df content discussion for our content this week, uh, it's going to be fairly Forza heavy on the channel moving forward. Uh, as of this recording, uh, the first video is out. And uh, it is your uh, video, John, that's kind of uh, starting us off here. Uh, so if you haven't yet, uh, this is coming out on Saturday. Uh, so if you haven't seen John's video yet, definitely check it out. I think you've been pretty happy so far. But I absolutely love the game. I think it's a great series. Um, it's... To me, this is the spiritual continuation of what they, what Bizarre's Creations did with Project Gotham Racing, where it has elements of realistic driving in it, but it's more about arcade-style racing. And the Horizon games bring... It's one of the few series. It has these bright, vibrant colors and huge open vistas and just this fun track to race on. And it is open world, but the, just the act of driving around in itself and getting into these events, is it's fun. It's It feels powerful, and, and it's... I don't know. I just love it. 
Uh, the closest thing I can think of it, it kind of, it gives me that vibe I got back in the day playing SSX three. If you guys ever played that where it's that you're just kind of like in the world and there's just like a festival going on. And I don't know. I, I, I really enjoy that. And just, it plays great. It looks great. And it's one of the best examples I've seen of a net, uh, what is it? A cross generation game. And by that, I mean, uh, it does take full advantage of the new consoles in ways that can be often striking. Like when you see Xbox one versus series X, the difference is vast. It's huge. It's, it's much better looking, but the game still actually looks really good on its own running on that old 2013 hardware. So it doesn't feel like they compromise too much. I think the biggest compromise is that it'll be in Rich's video actually comes down to loading the last generation version on Xbox one. The loading is pretty dire uh, and even worse uh, than you might expect. And that's kind of the only limitation I think really, really, uh, but I don't know, Alex, I think, um, I don't know if your video will be live by the time people see this, probably, maybe, but you played a lot on PC, of course, right? And have some thoughts. Like looking at this from the perspective of the console, I think it's a really awesome version that you got there. And I think the PC version is also really good. Uh, but I almost, it's like one of those releases where I can see that this could have been just like the most, one of the most amazing PC uh, versions that you could have had, but it's just like, doesn't go, it doesn't grab far enough. And it's probably because they're shipping, you know, uh, I don't know how many platforms here uh, to get out here now. And that's probably why it's like the PC version doesn't grab as high as it could. But beyond that, I th one thing I posted on Twitter recently uh, when John's video came out is I want this... It's probably going to have very different opinions about this, but, you know, Forza Horizon on the Xbox Series X and, you know, uh, Xbox Series S and its various modes uh, tries to go for a, like a native resolution presentation as much as possible. Uh, and tries to do it with four times uh, multi-sample anti-aliasing. And uh, I'm curious what people in the audience think about that, because there's times in this game where I'm looking at the, you know, like the things that are rendering in the environment and just the general art itself too. I almost wish that they didn't do MSAA and they used that rendering power elsewhere and they instead went for TAA. It's a little bit weird to think about because it's a racing game, but I don't know. It's What do you think there, John? Yeah, I totally agree with you at this point. Uh, MSAA has its benefits, of course, but I think with the way modern rendering works, especially in a foliage-heavy game where the MSAA has no coverage there, uh, you end up with more pixelation than you might like. Uh, the game is super sharp and clean, clear, I guess clear rather than clean, um, but... Uh, but I feel like they need to move on to TAA to really push it, you know? Like, I, I don't find it too distracting, though, during normal gameplay because, one, I'm playing on a TV from a distance, so it does kind of blend it a little bit, whereas you're playing on PC up very, very close to a huge screen. Like, uh, so all those pixel artifacts will stand out. But also while driving, the motion blur kind of smears over a lot of stuff anyway, and the motion blur looks awesome, but... uh. So I don't know. It's weird. Like, I, I think the image quality is good enough, but I do think they're wasting the resources by focusing so heavily on MSAA and TAA is, is probably the way forward here. That's what I'd hope too. And they, I hope they do look at it for the future because it will help, it'll help in other areas of the game. Um, I was thinking about if they do bring out a ray tracing patch at some time, that'll definitely be helpful there for sure. Um, but in general, I just want to say that it's a really good version. I'm really happy to see a cross-gen game that, uh, like when you say, when Rich's video comes out, I think it's just really cool to see how much 
different it looks on next-gen. Like, they actually did put in the effort here. It definitely looks like a next-gen, cross-gen game. That was one of the surprises. They actually had two sets of meshes for certain parts of the environment. Like, there's the Xbox One class, the last-gen, and then there's the next-gen stuff in PC. Uh, and they actually created different quality levels there specifically to increase the level of detail on the advanced consoles. Plus, you know, uh, at least in quality mode and PC, you get things like cone step mapping, which is really noticeable in a lot of the building geometry. Uh, it adds all those like uh, like stone and, and different like bricks and all these things have like proper depth that just looks awesome. Uh, in fact, for my, for my video, I went back to Forza Horizon 2 which was a good looking game at the time, but then you compare it to what they're doing now, even the Xbox one version of Forza Horizon five. And it's, it's a vast difference. <laughs> uh, they've come a long way. So these guys, these guys are awesome. Another video that we ran on the channel was Tom's look at guardians of the galaxy. And he was quite surprised. And you, John, I know you've been playing it and you were quite surprised as well. And I have a few questions regarding this, but what was your thoughts now? Cause you've actually been playing this game and kind of singing its praises. I saw Tom's video and I saw all the reviews and talked to a bunch of people and I was kind of shocked by the reaction because if you recall, I think you and I were actually watching the E3 presentation, right? And it looked awful in the presentation. It, we kind of joked about it the whole time. It's just being kind of like, what are they doing? This looks like a disaster. Uh, but I should have known better than, than to not trust IDOS Montreal or Montreal, who's done these amazing Deus Ex games, uh, the reboots, Human Revolution and Mankind Divided. Um, they did a phenomenal job here. And there's multiple reasons I would say why. I actually went out and bought the game this week because I, I really had to give it a shot. And I'm happy I did because, uh, first of all, the quality of the writing genuinely surprised me. Like, it's 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 actually extremely well written. It's It's funny but also like engaging and uh, their dialogue system, the way it works is like surprisingly on point. Like a lot of times you're just walking around, you're doing puzzles or engaging in combat and the way the teammates banter back and forth and, and sort of integrate into what's happening, it felt almost scripted in a way, but it's not. And if you replay scenes, you kind of see like, oh, the, lots of different dialogue things can happen. And depending on what you're doing, it's context driven. Uh, and that really adds a lot, but it's just a straight up single player story driven game. Uh, it's, it's completely just, it's, it's not open world. It's not full of games as a service things. It doesn't have multiplayer. It doesn't have microtransactions. It's just a cool experience. That is kind of what I think the Avengers should have been. Cause you played that Avengers game and like the introduction, like it was fairly basic, but I was I, I could see it being somewhat compelling, but then all of a sudden you unlock that war table uh, and it's just like, oh, now it's Destiny. Not to knock Destiny, cause, but Destiny works because the gunplay is so good, but in Avengers it was like, it, it was boring. <laughs> I did not like that game in the end. Do you feel that kind of the mediocre response to Avengers affected the hype and release of Guardians of the Galaxy? I think yes. I think it's a combination of that uh, in addition to the pre-release marketing. I don't feel like they did a great job of communicating what makes this game interesting uh, because, man, it's, it's, a, it's, 
it's a really hard one because I think you just look at it. They just tried tried to show some of the action. They didn't focus on the great writing and characters. Uh, which, by the way, the 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 Star Lord in this specific version of Guardians of the Galaxy, I actually think is better than uh, the films. In fact, the whole the whole cast, I would argue, I actually think the voice work in this is some of the best I've heard in video games in a long time. Like the voice direction here is extremely good. Uh, I urge you to check it out if you haven't already, just to hear like the voice actors, the way they play off each other and just the quality of the writing combined. Plus, finally, so this uses the Dawn engine, right? Which was used for Deus Ex Mankind Divided. Uh, the facial expressions were kind of bad in that game. And that always bothered me. Now they have some of the best I've seen for a game like this. Because it's not a game that just... The cutscenes are not just all these like big budget scripted stuff. There's a lot of dialogue sequences and Mass Effect like, you know, where you pops up with dialogue choices and you kind of rotate your, your analog stick to choose from one of the options. There's a lot of talking head sequences and the quality of the animation and the expressions and the characters kind of shocked me at like how good and natural it actually is. Um, so... I don't know. I, I, I really like what they did here. Uh, and I'm going to keep playing for sure. And um, yeah, this, this kind of cemented IDOS Montreal as a really top tier developer in my book. So I love what they did with Deus Ex, but I wasn't sure that they could pull off this kind of game. And they did. Uh, last on the docket for DF content, we want to finally reveal what the next DF Retro is going to be. Uh, we've started working on it. I've started working on it while John was on VK up there in France, uh, but uh, we are now starting to work on the actual production should be out uh, within the month. John, do the honors. What is the next big DF Retro? We're do It's late because Halloween's over, but we're actually doing uh, the Splatterhouse series. Uh, and this is a really interesting one because it's a game that had some, some curious ports. Uh, the first game had some interesting ports. It's obviously the excellent PC Engine version. Uh, there's also an FM Towns version. But then, of course, you know, we wanted to talk about 2 and 3 on the Mega Drive. And then look back at the rather strange 20, 2010 release for PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. I was involved with in the very beginning, believe it or not. And that's on the audio side. I guess that's something we'll talk about in the video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, that is one thing. There's not much to share because I was only in the pre-production of the game. Uh but we'll talk a bit about that. Uh, it's an interesting uh, thing, though. Uh, it's another episode where we're going to look into kind of the history of horror on the home market, the home video market in Japan. Look at how that influenced Splatterhouse. Uh, we are, of course, looking at the legendary LCD thingy uh, as best as we can. Uh, so you're getting, getting, you're getting the full Splatterhouse. Wanpaku graffiti on Famicom. Yeah, of course, so. Wanpaku graffiti, which uh, I think we both have. Yeah, but I, I think so, you're right. I think the thing about horror games is what makes this interesting because this was one of the first attempts to really channel into that that horror style vibe that was, especially the type of horror movie that was very popular in the '80s, uh, and bring that into a game and do so with a lot of gore. I would say it was. I feel like if this game had released. Splatterhouse was primarily known for its TurboGrafx-16 slash PC Engine release. Uh, and I think because the, the TurboGrafx was not a popular system, and then the sequels on Sega Genesis didn't exactly like light the world on fire in terms of success, I think if Splatterhouse 1 had released later and for a popular system, it probably would have found itself included alongside stuff like Night Trap and Mortal Kombat and those famous Senate hearings. Because it is... It's a game that's pretty darn violent. <laughs> we'll go into all this 
in the uh, the Fretter episode. Uh, I think it will be another very cool one. It's one that I've been looking forward to doing. And uh, John and I started capturing when I was at his place. So, uh, yeah, in November, you'll get a second dose of Halloween. Uh, but uh, never it's never too late. Thea Fretro is always uh, in style. Yeah, hopefully in a week and a half or so. But, yes, that will do it for DF content this week. Uh, let's move on to supporter questions. Lovely gentlemen, we have a few questions here from the community. We take questions on our Patreon every week. Uh, sign up. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what you're getting at the end of the episode. But let's get into the very first question here from Kevin O'Connor. And he says, based on a recent Patreon Discord discussion, which you can only take part in if you're on the Patreon support program, uh, did you have parents or older relatives who were into games when you were younger, and do they still play? What would their reactions if you tried to explain the benefits of technologies like ray tracing, SSAO, FreeSync, TXAA, and so on to them these days? Well, uh, how does your Christmas dinners go, Alex? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I talked about this once before. We can talk about it again uh, in another episode. I think of DF After Dark would be cool about like what got us into playing video games in the first place. But uh, my father definitely played PC games uh, when I was younger, and that's how I got into it initially. Uh, and he does not play PC games anymore. Doesn't play any games anymore, actually. Uh, but he's still fascinated by the stuff that we talk about. He just asks, what he asked me is, where did you get all this uh, knowledge from about these things? And I just say, oh, I'm just kind of learned these things over time. Uh, so the answer to this is no, and they don't get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's about it. My parents definitely did not engage with video games in any form. Um, in fact, they really did not enjoy me using the television for any sort of gaming at the time, which is why I spent so much time either doing Game Boy gaming or uh, using the personal computer for such things, because there was a lot of harsh limits on that. But I will say, though, that we did have a there was a, a friend of my parents who was a bit older than them, actually, uh, at the time he was like 60, but he was like super into games and he. I bonded well with him actually. And um, that's where I got my first Sega Saturn from. He gave me a Saturn, which was awesome when it was still relatively new. Uh, lots of PC games as well. Not always, you know, legitimate if you will. Um, but so that was good. It's like, Hey, I get that. Get this rise of the triad for you. So I don't know. Unfortunately he passed, uh, quite a few years ago and uh but i would love to to talk technology now with someone like that uh just to see what they think because things have changed so much since those old days uh so my parents uh to certain degrees did play video games my mom played a lot of video games when i was a kid uh she liked to play tetris so uh tetris was one of the we met with alexei a few years ago at e3 and uh he actually uh, wrote my mom a little card because my mom was a local champion in tetris uh she's also very good at dr mario and actually uh, broke up with her boyfriend at some point because she beat him too much at dr mario and he did not take that too well <laughs> <laughs> so that's a story my mom can probably tell you more about. Uh, she was also very much into Mega Man. And, uh, you know, my uh, my mother is a wonderful person. And uh, when Mega Man 9 came out, uh, I think I still have the pictures. So I'll show it on screen there. But I told her uh, that, hey, me and my friends started meeting up at my place to, uh, you know, 
uh, play Mega Man 9. Do you remember Mega Man? And she was like, oh, I love that. And she came over with a Mega Man cake for us. She surprised oh us my God. with a Mega Man cake on release day of Mega Man 9. So uh, if I had a picture, I'll show that you. But awesome. She did a good job, and it just shows you that she also has some uh, sentimental feelings on video games. So I was very lucky in that regard. Uh, she doesn't play so much more now, but on Christmas and stuff, she does love when we try out new games and whatnot if we picked some up for Christmas. So still very much part of our family is to enjoy these video games. Whether or not I try to explain the benefits of technology to them. Uh, have you seen me on this show trying to explain stuff? Uh, it's not going to work out well. And here's the thing. No one cares. Yeah. No one cares unless they spend money on a rig to do these things. So and I think we can learn something from our parents here still in their old age is just to have fun with these things and not worry too much about it so no i do not try to explain the benefits of technologies to my parents um, and i don't think they would understand it's for enthusiasts and for sure. specifically viewers of digital foundry <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. that's about and it nothing wrong with being enthusiastic about it uh, but uh, there's no reason to try to explain the benefits to a 61 year old woman who still <laughs> true. enjoys playing dr mario what about what about your dad is what does he think of bubsy <laughs> so uh, uh my dad uh, uh my dad is a very adventurous person who says nothing uh, he speaks very few words so i couldn't tell you how he feels about them uh but he did play a lot of racing games because uh, in his off time he did uh, rally racing uh when he was younger uh, up until my teens he uh, drove rally uh, so he would pick up like rally games. Like uh, I remember the first game he bought me was Rad Racer, uh, which we played together a lot uh, throughout the years. He would really love those Colin McRae games on PlayStation 1. And oh, my dad, uh, he really wanted to get a racing rig, I remember. So he went into the basement. He disconnected the dish, not dish, uh, the, uh, the washer for laundry took it all out and built this monstrous steel rig for his uh, feedback rig, uh, steering wheel and then pedals. Uh, didn't tell his wife about it. Uh, so this was a very interesting experience. Uh, my dad uh, just gets an idea he does it, and uh, he did not have clean laundry for a while. He doesn't play much more now, but he does have a fascination for DF as I joined, and he's very, very curious why you people care about that damn cat. Because every time we mention Bubsy, he just remembers that he gave that to me <laughs> on Christmas. And he's just like, why do people still care about this thing? And I say, I had no idea. Just don't read the comments. Uh, I think that answers the question. Uh, too much family history from my end. Uh, but uh, we'll move on to the next question. Uh, next question from... What a wonderful name, Carlo Della Cruz. Will 120 hertz modes on latest consoles be less prominent as time passes? Once developers find ways to make higher fidelity looking games, you would guess it's not feasible to get 120 frames per second, right? Reason I ask is that I really like that Samurai Showdown on Xbox Series has 120 hertz support. Probably the only fighting game that really support it. I can see that that really being beneficial in the fighting community due to obvious input lag reduction. I do question if developers are capable enough to make their upcoming fighters maintain that frame rate while still looking nice and modern at the same time. A more challenging balancing act. Alex? Uh, in general, I kind of want to say yes, that'll be less prominent over time because, you know, 
60 FPS modes, I would also argue on like the last gen consoles became less prominent over time. And maybe it'll just happen here because, you know, the pri development priorities change. Uh, I can imagine that happening, 120 FPS becoming less common. Uh, I can imagine that happening. Um, what you were saying regarding it, though, for something like the fighting game community, I don't think it's about feasibility because I think fighting games are really usually under complex uh, regarding like the simulation requirements. It's more about like high resolution and things like that. Uh, but the thing is, for them, it's more about like what they're used to. Uh, like I think the fighting game community and I think uh, developers are very used to targeting games around fixed time, 60 FPS. So it, I think it takes requires like a cultural change or a, a development style change to make 120 FPS fighters more more useful. That also becomes difficult for like FGC tournaments where uh, you know they bring a bunch of TVs or something to an event, right? And you can expect every TV to just do 60 hertz, right? these days i think they would use monitors these days usually because they're cheap right but again you can't even expect those to support 120 hertz from the consoles especially uh so that's not like a foregone conclusion and it just can create more logistical errors i i suspect but i don't know i mean i i think as we've always said frame rate is a choice the developer decides the frame rate there's more than enough power to do whatever frame rate they desire up to 120 frames per second. It's just about designing the rest of the game's visuals uh, around that target, right? So uh, I think I think we will still see some 120 frames per second games, but I think it probably won't be that common just because I think most developers are not going to want to make the compromises necessary to get there. Um, so I don't know. It's a, it's a really curious one. What I would like to, though, I... I would like to see more indie developers use it, especially for things like platformers. Just 120 hertz is so good for a platforming game. Uh, and the demands on this is not, they're not that significant. So it's, that's something I'd like to see. I'm just imagining a, a, a 120 hertz Unity platformer game with a 50 hertz camera bug. That's what it's, uh, it's, it's what I was thinking about when you described at, that to me. At least, like, oh, no. at least we have uh, the, the Ori game. Mm -hmm which is 120 hertz that's without awesome. the camera bug thankfully and it's it's super smooth and awesome <laughs> so it is possible as i do think for console gamers this generation will be very kind to them in terms of frame rates uh even as things move on like if you i've actually looked over the entire release list for all of the consoles right now and it's kind of shocking to see that like it's like 80, 85% plus games on these machines are 60 frames per second or higher. Uh, or they have a mode that's 60 frames per second, right? So 30 seems to become becoming increasingly uncommon as a standard. There's not actually that many current generation console games thus far that only run at 30 frames per second. So that, does, that has not happened before. Uh, well, it, it has, but during the PlayStation 2 generation. It hasn't happened since the HD consoles arrived. Uh, and you look at even like last gen, where in the first year they tried a little bit, but it was not good. Like, it's like oh, Tomb Raider Definitive Edition, uh, it's like 45 frames per second average, right? I mean, it got up to 60, but it was very unstable. And like, they there were so many games launching with uncapped, unstable frame rates that just were not 
anywhere near hitting their 60 FPS target, and that's not the case this time. From Lee Morris. Hi all, I was wondering, how many games do each of you have in your collections? Also, if you had to sell off your collection, which game would you keep for sentimental reasons? Thank you. Well, thank you, Lee Morris. Uh, uh, I just, I'm doing a reorganization of my office. I'm building a new studio space here, and I'm just going to say too many. <laughs> uh, there's no other answer more appropriate. Uh, but uh, This is just including uh, physical games, by the way. I don't, so this is a weird, I don't know about you guys, but I, I actually don't, when I have a digital game, even if I purchase it, I don't, I don't actually consider it as owning the game. <laughs> so I would not. It's a glorified loan. Basically. <laughs> so I, I know people don't necessarily agree with that, but. I currently have 3,063 physical games across a wide range of platforms. Uh, and, you know, I do collect mod, you know, stuff now, but a lot of this stuff I've had, I bought back when it was new and I've just kind of kept it. I kind of learned since like in the mid nineties, I sold a bunch of old gaming stuff, like 16 bit and eight bit stuff to like fund graphics cards for my PC and I really regretted that. And ever since then, I decided I'm not going to sell off these things anymore. And I'm happy I have not. So, um, but as for ones that I would keep for sentimental value, that's, it's actually difficult to just say off the top of my head, but it would probably be, you know, those that have memories attached to when I picked them up back in the day. Uh, like, you know, I just think like just a random one, like, the day I got Silent Hill 2 and Eco, same day, uh, getting those both, bringing them back and, and playing Eco all afternoon and then Silent Hill 2 through the night, you know, it was a very memorable time. And, uh, you know, it's just experiences like that so, or the day, you know, Dreamcast launch day when I got Sonic Adventure and Soul Calibur and all that and Blue Stinger, you know, I played so much Soul Calibur and Sonic that day, especially and you know the, those memories mean a lot so stuff like that i think would stick with me so but i don't think i'm going to sell it off i got like 200 games behind me here and they're mainly from like a generation there's some stuff there that isn't on uh digital platforms which is nice uh like wolf 2009 no one no one that's not on digital platforms for some reason uh i don't know why and stuff like the original prey was also deplatformed at one point um but I don't think I'm actually wholly con uh, connected to them. Like I need them for sentimental value or anything like, like that. Uh, the games that I play the most are always installed no matter what. Uh, that's like the way I always see it. And thankfully the PC platform makes it so that I can always have them. Uh, and the physical thing is nice. I think it looks cool, uh, but I'm less attached to that than I am physical hardware, for example, where I'd be like, oh man, that's cool. I don't want to lose that GPU or, oh man, that's cool. I don't want to lose that sound card. That's the way I've become about those kind of things instead. Uh, yeah. Hardware is also very appealing to me, yeah. as you know. <laughs> yeah, I know, John. I'm surprised you didn't say uh, Turok. <laughs> Turok. Uh, Turok physical, like, I don't know if you're getting too much of that, like, on, either on N64 or, uh, or on PC. Like, I both consider both those releases uh, less superior to the uh, re-release, which is mostly digital only on PC. 
Oh, uh, on PC, yeah. Yeah. There is uh, actually a physical version. Yeah. It's about sentimentality. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, sentimentality, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love that game, of course, but I don't need the the, the initial copy as much uh, as, as you may for other things. I don't know, Alex. I, I love Turok, too. And... <laughs> <laughs> I have all the versions of Turok because I love it so much. Yeah, I'm much more into the Game Boy versions of Turok than I am the uh, the 3D ones. You're just, like the 2D... you're just being contrarian. I mean, they're not bad. They're no, they're actually, horrible. you're right. They, they are yeah. actually quite good. They're pretty good. The it's just ver- that they're very good music. The third the game is also Turok. better than the original, like the third game on like N64. Oh, the third, yeah. third game is not good. No, it's not. <laughs> like, it's hard to pick one game because I have sentimental. Like John mentioned, there's like memories attached to. I don't buy games just to have them. For the most part, I buy them to play them and have memories with them. So, you know, I, I have so many sentimental feelings for so many games, regarding regardless if I bought it, you know, 25 years ago or five days ago. So it's, it's a very tough question, actually. Next question from Todd Weitzel. When will clothing on characters stop clipping for geometry? The Order 1886 is the last game I can think of where I got through the whole game without noticing a single problem with clothing, be it clipping or rubbery metal. Yeah, Alex, when will it stop? <laughs> I would actually take... I would imagine, actually, that the Order definitely has clipping, but you're, uh, but you're thinking about it differently. So I think, uh, Todd, you're thinking about, like, loose hanging stuff that's just, like, walking and billowing around uh you know like it looks physicalized it looks like it's wavy and whatever but if you actually probably look at like the like here on their arm or the when they bend their legs like underneath their their knee like below their kneecap i don't know what you call it in english the thing that's like the bottom side of your knee that's always places in games where the geometry is always going to be clipping because we don't usually do that really well at all (laughs) in games um so i actually take 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 issue with what you're saying about the order i definitely imagine that's clipping on clothing but when will this uh i don't think this is probably going to go away for a long time because just the way we do geometry in games and it's so expensive to do collision already maybe you know as ray tracing gets better and gpus get better at doing it uh maybe we'll see uh solutions using that and doing it really really well but at that point you're spending all this you're spending all this power to do something that I don't know. It's 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 nice, but it's not it's not the only thing that makes a game look better. It's definitely in that nice to have category where it's usually not worth the budget required to achieve it. I think, and we've seen enough good enough solutions where it's usually not like hugely noticeable that I don't think it's that important to solve. But I do have to say, I I was just thinking about cloth physics again. And I just remembered how much I love the, the, the physics that were added to Mirror's Edge on the PC in 2009. And why, why don't we see more of that? <laughs> I, miss, I, I love that stuff. It's, I feel like we're back to a point, though, where at the very least, more physical stuff like that is possible again on consoles because they're not saddled with those netbook CPUs. Um, like so maybe we'll see some more of that i sure hope so because i felt like you had crisis and then you had the mirror's edge release on pc and we're seeing all this stuff with amazing physics and then it's like 2010 and onward just it just all goes away pretty much and it's 
It's so disappointing. He talks about the Order 1886, but I would say that one very good, more recent example is Street Fighter V. It deals with clipping very well. It's not perfect, but it deals with the clipping of cloth in here uh, a lot better than a lot of games I've seen, and uh, does so very well. So I I think people kind of sleep on Street Fighter V because they don't like the art style, but when you actually look at physics and also clipping and yeah <laughs> we talked about this you before. hate everything <laughs> i've seen this show before <laughs> so um it is something it's, fighting games are good when it comes to clipping stuff because you can focus so much on characters and uh, you know minute detail like that and uh, you know do you remember john when the first time you saw like dead or live 2 or tekken tag and stuff when that came out on playstation 2 i mean it clips like crazy today but i just remember seeing like actual layers of clove back then and being amazed that like that looks like a jacket it's not painted on his body anymore that's cool yeah that man. was actually a big step forward where they had actual like geometric clothing <laughs> that was yeah. layered on top of somebody like that was new for that generation and quite impressive i think at the time and yeah it clipped it, it clipped through everything of course if you looked but it's still it, it flowed smoothly and i i actually think the motion is more important than whether it clips or not to a degree like I still, when I think about awesome looking like cloth simulation, I keep going back to Assassin's Creed unity for some reason, like just the running cycle combined with, with the cloth on his uh, clothing still looks awesome today. Uh, there's so many things about Assassin's Creed unity that it felt like, like they just like step back in so many ways that series compared to that. They were doing so many like forward-looking things with that game, and then they got burned because it released in a buggy state. And just, yeah, it. I maintain that the public reaction to Assassin's Creed Unity ruined the series. <laughs> it definitely did. <laughs> yeah, you probably. <laughs> John Paul McKenna. A few weeks ago, Alex mentioned liberating Resistance Three from bad frame rate exile on PS3. Uh, Sony don't seem to be interested in backwards compatibility beyond PS4 on console. Do you think that moving into PC publishing where emulation already exists might prompt them to look at their older catalog? John? That's a really good question, and I'm going to have to say no. Yeah, right. I yeah. don't think that... It's a clear no. I don't think that they're <laughs> going to dip back into the PlayStation 3 era specifically because, uh, one, those games, they're a bit older at this point, and two, I just, I don't... I'd be curious to know about the state of like the source code for those, like what's left of them, like how it feels like it would be pretty difficult to bring it back. And I don't know if I don't think Sony is going to release a game on the PC. That's an emulated game either. Like I just don't see that happening. Uh, and I'm not sure PC fans would be all that okay with that either, to be honest, because emulation does exist and it's free right uh and so if they were to just essentially do the same thing and then charge for it that would not go over well <laughs> uh i i think most of the stuff we're going to see going forward from them is just going to be ps4 and then ps5 stuff on the pc stuff where they still have like the the source code and they still have you know they can that was probably already built on a pc anyway in the traditional way uh so unfortunately I think PlayStation 3 is just one of those weird eras in terms of the way games were made on that system that I don't think it it's going to be an easy task for any developer to bring those back in a way that's that that's effective. Uh, you know, like 
I don't think we're fans of Metal Gear Solid 4 here, really. And Audi hates it. I know that. But it is essentially a game that's held hostage on PlayStation 3, right? And it's just it's that it, the only <laughs> thing that holds hostage is the people playing. It. <laughs> I was say. True. Yeah, I feel weird saying held hostage though because you know there's a lot of exclusive console games. It's more that there's technical faults in that game that could that could have been corrected. Like when you look at like an exclusive Mega Drive game, they look beautiful. They're 60 frames per second. There's no real need for it to be anywhere else because it was already like pretty much perfect in its original form. Where you know Metal Gear Solid Four. Uh, however you feel about the game itself like the tech side there was clear limitations there i actually think like metal gear solid 2 on playstation 2 holds up better on real hardware than mgs4 does on a ps3 uh given the the platform but yeah so that's just me kind of rambling about this stuff but i guess for our for for the question here nah we're not gonna see you're only gonna see them maximize profit on their current lineup they're not going to go back and the thing about resistance i will say though is there is always this chance i don't i think it's very slim now but there's always a tiny chance that insomniac may one day revisit the franchise uh, with a new installment and there could be an opportunity for them to release like a resistance trilogy you know um which is feasible and i know insomniac tends to be pretty good about maintaining old projects uh, more than some other developers from what i understand they've done a good job there so it could actually be feasible for those games to return at some point but i don't think it has anything to do with the pc the yarker comes the question why do nvidia keep releasing lower tier gpus with more vram than the higher t- tier gpus the 3060 and the soon to be announced released 3070 ti or tie both strangely have more vram than the 3080 i love alex's expression here when you see that question just yeah that, it's that like grin. So, it's just like uh, i hate these gpus i think they're so stupid uh that's me i hate everything um uh no, here they're doing it because there's a technical limitation. It's like Nvidia had their pants like pulled down at some point in like the public sphere because they really they were going to release GPUs with like six gigabytes of, of VRAM, uh, and it's like oh gosh, we have all these GPUs and they have like a limitation on their memory interface, and we could only release them with three, six, or twelve. Uh, they they would love to release it with eight if they could but they can't because of a technical thing in the way they manufactured them. So they have to slap 12 on there, which is just for these GPUs really not very useful. Like eight to 10 is like, like eight is great. 10 is pushing it. 12 is just like, what is the purpose other than for productivity, which we've talked about before, but it's just a technical limitation from the manufacturing process where they really wanted to release it with six originally, but they just couldn't because AMD made it that impossible, which is good. Uh, that's the reason why. Yeah. Last question. Hondas. And uh, Alex, I think you're the only one who can answer this one too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from uh, Anders Lenning. Uh, Lenning, by the way, is uh, literally means salary. So great last name. That's a good that's one. A good uh, as so he's literally a salary man. Been, the salary. Man. Yeah, he is a, the real salary man. <laughs> Uh, as a Norwegian guy who's been on both sides of making and covering games, Audi, what do you think is the reason Norway has such an underdeveloped games industry compared to our Scandinavian neighbors? 
Okay, so this is a very specific question. And I need to preface by saying that I, the last time I worked for a, or worked with a Norwegian game company was 2001, uh, when I was an intern at Funcom, uh, uh, which I've talked about and will talk about in the After Dark, which might be out by the time public hears about this on our Patreon. But, uh, okay, I'll try to answer this as concise as I can with what I personally feel and know. But Norway is a fairly underdeveloped country or was very underdeveloped when it came to engineering and IT up until the 2000s. Uh, in Sweden, Denmark, Sweden, you had like Volvo, uh, Denmark had uh, a couple of electronics companies. You kind of had the infrastructure of going into engineering, into IT, whereas in Norway, it took us a long time to uh, legitimize this kind of direction. When I was a kid, you know, going to school in the 80s and 90s, the idea of working within a computer space and IT was very academic. Uh, it meant that you had a very heavy focus on math and kind of general academics rather than focusing on the individual and the individual talent. So I think it took a long time for us to just see that this is a career path and therefore it is only in the last 10 years that we've seen a growth because we've been able to actually um respect the creative end of what you know an it career can be uh location is another thing we're we're very distant in terms of actual distance you know geographical uh, cities are far in between and video gaming is a team effort this is very important to note that within the creative medium video games are very special in this regard it requires the kind of synergy between a group of people to make a complete product. You can do something alone, like another world and such, but it becomes a very, it becomes very interestingly expressionally, but as a complete game, you can see kind of the results there. And Norwegians as a people are very private, uh, we're very quiet. So we don't have culturally the same ability as Swedish people and Danish people to cooperate in that sense to team up back then we didn't i think now we're you know opening up a little bit more to a little bit more of an international you know communication style if i can say it like that culturally uh so this is another thing so and quite honestly it also comes back to culture that we still permeate this idea that video gaming is uh a wasteful hobby in Norway and it's very farmer speak uh, but you know I see just in the newspaper I was interviewed by the newspaper not too long ago about my career and a lot of the questions were kind of like well you know you sit and play games a lot like did you didn't you go outside and play soccer as a kid and it's like you have this idea that playing video games is wasteful and then you have an older generation that just kind of looks at it and doesn't feel like that this is an industry, a billion dollar industry, and therefore you don't have the same infrastructure to set up companies, you don't have the same funding from government to set up companies. Uh, and it is only in the last 10 years that suddenly uh, up in Hamad, which is close to Lillehammer where the Olympics were in 94, that you suddenly got a collective that kind of set, set up there and decided to, you know, focus on an option for people to create video games. Now, this is a very good, I never worked with them. I met a few of the students there. 
Uh, I've never been part of that collective. Uh, I'm too old. And my career went to the U.S. and Japan before they started up. But the thing about it that they're very good at harboring and, you know, teaching the creative end. But where they're lacking a lot is the experience of manufacturing, producing, and publicizing the games. Because um, reaching games, we see them all the time. John and I will go to a convention in the U.S., we'll go to a convention in England, wherever it is. And we'll always see, like, a Norwegian developer... And they're always in like a dark little corner doing a very special looking kind of game. But you don't hear about it. You don't really see it. Because I don't think, uh, again, it comes back to that cultural idea that Norwegians are very quiet, very private. So the idea of standing out, the idea of speaking out and kind of taking it charge and getting that attention is very alien still to us. So there's still so much for us to learn. It's still so young. And Denmark, Sweden, they're much closer in proximity. They have much more of an ability to create small pockets, create small communities, and promote one another. Uh, we haven't had that until like 2010. So that would be my answer to that. That's a good long answer. That's a pretty good it. answer, actually. Cool. Yeah. Good way to capstone the so episode. If anyone out there watching the show is Norwegian, the three of you, you work in the Norwegian games industry, you want to talk about it, I would love to talk to you about it, learn more about it, and maybe do like a podcast on the Patreon and learn more about Scandinavian development. Because I think it is in many ways very, shall I say, bespoke. Uh, we have very interesting culture here. We have a lot of you know history. We have a lot of uh, culture that can be like trolls and whatnot you know there's so many avenues nature uh, that we take um, inspiration from that is different from the rest of the world and i think at some point uh, this should be exploited in video games and really promoted so an adventure game with trolls would be amazing <laughs> norwegian exploitation uh video games that's what you <laughs> no. are Norwegian exploitation. Yeah. That's my new company. Norwegian <laughs> exploitation. As I said, I'm not feeling uh, top, uh, tip-top shape today. Uh, I hope people in the comments can uh, spare me. <laughs> but uh, it has been great fun, gentlemen, yeah. to be with you today. Thank you, Ari. If you like this video, you know, of course, subscribe to the channel, ring the notification bell. Rich will send you instant. Yes, that's instant notifications. Personally, every time he puts up a video. And of course, if you want to talk to us, you can go on our DF supporter program, sign up. All tiers now get early access to this show on Saturdays. You can download this in whatever format you want from your podcasts to video and watch it on Saturday rather than Monday, like all the common people out there. And we have a lot of great fun on Discord. You can ask us even more questions there all the time. Just let us know what you want to know. And of course, Follow us all on Twitter, but that's it for me. Thank you so much for watching and see you next time. Hello everyone and welcome to another week of DF Direct Weekly. It is our weekly talk show where we talk about news, rumors and everything in between. I'm very happy to be back. I'm a little bit under the weather today, but hopefully we'll get through the show without any accidents uh, on camera or in my pants. But before getting there, uh, let's uh, talk to the other people on the show. Should we just do that again? No poop jokes this time. <laughs>